Let this mind be in which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you bow with me, please, as we begin? Father, we are thankful for this day of life that you've given us. We're thankful for your Son who came and died for us. We're thankful for the land in which we live in this community. We're thankful for this congregation. And we ask that you bless us as we go through these different times that we can come out strong or stronger than, than what we've started. We pray that you continue to watch over our shut-ins that uh, can't be here. We ask your continued blessings on them. We're thankful for Melanie and wanting to be part of the family here at Rome and pray that you bless her. We ask that you be with David and Shannon and Emma and say fight the virus and, and be with Linda White and her family at the passing of her brother. Be with Julie as she's in the hospital with blood pressure and pray that they can help her also. We ask, Father, that you go with us through this service as Chris presents a lesson, John leads us in singing, and as we surround that table, we ask your blessings on our sick and our shut-ins. Bless us as we go through this service. We pray we do it in a way that's pleasing unto you, that glorifies you. Forgive us when we sin. In thy son's name we pray. And amen. Would you stand for the first song, please?
First hymn this morning, number 598, Standing on the Promises. We'll sing the first three verses. <clears throat> Standing on <clears throat> Next hymn, number 761, Where He Leads, I'll Follow. 761. Relief, we'll have our scripture.
The reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Would you bow with me as we go to God in prayer? Father in heaven, again, we thank you for this uh, beautiful day you've given us. Father, thankful for the time that we're able to uh, gather here and and hear another lesson from your word, sing songs of praises to you, Father. We're thankful for that. And, and that, Father, at this hard time where uh, many are not being able to, to be here together with us and, and worship you, we pray for them, Father. We pray that you will bless them. And, Father, we pray that uh, you will help us to, uh, to send cards and to let them know and that we'll be able to... Uh, once again, go visit, Father, and, but just please let, just help us, Father, to do our part in helping them. And Father, we, we pray for those who were mentioned here this morning. We pray, Father, that uh, you'll uh, bless Linda White's family at, at the passing of her brother. We pray, Father, that you'll bless his family and comfort them. And, and Father, we pray for Amy Talbert. Uh, as she battles this cancer, we pray that you will uh, bless her. And, Father, we're thankful that uh, Margaret is able to be with us this morning, Father. We pray that you'll continue to watch over her and bless and comfort her and that family. And, Father, we pray for Julie Bricker's uh, daughter, or Janet Bricker's daughter. Father Julie, we pray that you'll bless her and be with the doctors who are attending her. And, Father, help us to, to keep our faith strong during these times. Help us, Father, to stand on that promise that you have given us. Father, we pray that you will be with Chris this morning as he brings us another lesson. And, Father, we're thankful for him. We're thankful for David and, and their families and continue to watch over them and bless them. And, Father, for those who uh, are bite, or fighting this uh, disease, Father, we pray that you'll bless them and the ones that's lost loved ones. And, and Father, those who are sick and, and aren't able to, uh, to be visited, we just pray that you will comfort these people in a way only you can. Continue to be with us. Bless us and forgive us when we fall short. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Next time, number 203, 203, we'll sing the first four verses. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God.
Last week, uh, Brian Ward led this portion of the service, and he mentioned uh, the Last Supper, uh, the Passover feast that, that Jesus observed with his, uh, with his apostles. And uh, it re reminded me of a reading uh, that I ran across a few years back. Um, I was going to pull the ideas from this and then give uh, Nathan Ward the credit, but it's a short one, so I'm just going to read it to you and have some good thoughts. Uh, Nathan um, was part of the DeWard Publishing Company uh, for a while. Part of his name was there, and they, uh, they published a really nice book a few years back on the personalities of the Gospels. I just, just say. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. So, after receiving the morsel of the bread, he immediately went out. John 13, 27, 30. While three of the four Gospels record Jesus' prediction that one of his apostles would betray him, John's Gospel is the only one that mentions the departure of Judas from the Twelve. And in this reading, we learn the precise moment that Judas left between two other key events. It is all significant, uh, also significant that Jesus was in control of Judas' departure. He sent Judas out when he was ready for him to leave. The timing of his departure teaches us important lessons about Jesus' ministry and being in communion with him. First, Judas' departure was after Jesus had washed his feet. Knowing Jesus no, Jesus, knowing that Judas would betray him, knelt down before Judas to do the work of the lowest servant. Why? For the same reason he gave Peter. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. The lesson is that Jesus' cleansing is for everyone. His work of service was for all mankind. He invites all to be washed. What's more is that no one is beyond salvation. There is no one whose sins are so reprobate that Jesus cannot provide cleansing. Further application is seen in Jesus' command for his disciples to wash one another's feet. No one is too evil to be the recipient of our service if it is needed. Secondly, Judas' departure was before Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Jesus was not going to establish the memorial of his death and the hope of his second coming with Satan and Judas in the room. Though Jesus had just proved that he is willing to accept anyone to be washed, one must actually be washed to be in fellowship with him. The lesson is that while Jesus' invitation is for all, not just anyone can be in communion with him. The one who will not receive cleansing remains unclean. While we cannot see the hearts of men, as Jesus could, he does expect us to examine our own hearts before coming into communion with him. 1 Corinthians 11. If our hearts are filled with Satan, we cannot partake of his feast. Even the vilest of acts teaches great lessons. Such is true with the treachery of Judas. By including Judas in the foot washing, but excluding him from the Lord's Supper, Jesus teaches us a very important lesson. He can cleanse anyone, 
but those who are not clean cannot share in his fellowship. His washing is for all without distinction, but not all without exception. So as we examine ourselves before we partake of the Lord's Supper, let's do everything that we can to be in communion with each other and with the Lord at this time as we partake. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you will be with us at this moment. We thank you for offering your son on the cross for our sins. We thank you for the institution of this memorial feast that he so uniquely instituted here at the Passover feast, his last Passover with his apostles. We pray, Father, that as we partake of this loaf that represents his body that was hung on the cross, the cruel and unbelievable pain and suffering he went through in that body, knowing that he was going to die, knowing that he was bearing the sins of all mankind, should sober us at this point and keep us focused on that sacrifice. We ask that you bless this bread as we take in Jesus' name. Amen. offer thanks for the fruit of the vine. Father in heaven, for that precious blood that was shed, we know that from almost the very beginning, you made a connection between life and blood, and that we know that the blood sacrifices offered under the old law were a signal for us that one coming later was to be far superior to that, those blood sacrifices back then. We thank you, Father, for the fact that that blood was offered on our behalf and for our sins. And as we partake of this fruit of the vine, which represents that blood and, its, and the salvation that it offers, we ask that you would bless it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This concludes the observance of the Lord's Supper. Um, we have also uh, an example, actually a command, in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 1, that we use as our authority for how we establish a local congregation and how we fund the work of that local congregation. And it is through 
the means of those individual members and the offerings that they give upon the first day of the week, which 1 Corinthians 16.1 uh, tells us is the, the, the appropriate time to do so. We have uh, some yellow uh, boxes in the back for those offerings, and uh, members of this congregation have that obligation uh, to do so. And so before you leave, if you will, uh, please deposit uh, those offerings there. Thank you. Let's all please stand. We'll sing hymn number 213. 213. He gave me a song. Number 667, 667, there's power in the blood. <clears throat> this time, Brother Chris. <clears throat> good morning. It's good to be back with you again uh, this week. I was out last week uh, thanks to my allergies, and I appreciate your patience with my allergies. <laughs> they are a thing to be feared. Um, so 
I went to the doctor. I'm on constant uh, medication for my allergies, my sinuses and things. And so I went to the doctor and I got the COVID thing and I'm negative, obviously. But um, they have put me on a menagerie of pills now. So if you hear me coughing, hi, it's allergies. <laughs> Let's get that out there. All right, let's be turning to Acts chapter 2. We are, uh, we're in this series, this, this week and next week, and then we'll close out this series. And we're going to start a series on uh, maybe the most overlooked gospel uh, among the four, the gospel of Mark. Uh, it's quickly becoming uh, one of my favorite gospels. And so uh, we're going to start that, uh, I think, the second week in October. So be looking forward to that. But right now, we're talking about some habits that the early church has that I think that if we put them into our lives today, we will have the same kind of results that the flourishing early church did. And so that's something we're obviously interested in. And so this morning we are in, uh, one more time, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We've been looking at these four different traits, uh, four different habits or rhythms, if you will, that this congregation had. That if we put them into our own lives, we will be just as successful as they were. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And remember, the first week we were in this series, we talked about how that was not necessarily the gospel, but how the gospel infiltrates every small section of our lives and kind of really influences every decision we make, every thought we have. The gospel influences those things, doesn't it? Because of the transformative power of Christ, the gospel has infiltrated every little corner, every dark corner that we wouldn't want anyone else to know about. The gospel has infiltrated that little corner, and it has changed our thinking, or at least it should have. And so, when the apostle, or when the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's what Luke is talking about here. He's talking about the hundred and one ways that the gospel changes how you think and how you act, and, and honestly, who you are, your personality. And so, they devoted themselves to that teaching. They were constantly learning how to be more and more transformed into the image of Christ. That's, that's our goal too, obviously. Uh, and then they also devoted themselves to the fellowship. No, so we use that word quite a bit, right? But do we really understand what it says? Well, this word in Greek is koinonia. Uh, and it's, it's we, have, you know, we have a fellowship hall and, and that's, we love eating together, obviously, and it's good to be together and to share but this word is, is more of a sharing of, of life and energy, emotional life, financial lives, bearing one another's burdens and being there for each other, uh, being so connected that when you hurt, I hurt. That's the first century church. That's the church that we ought to be. This, this idea of sharing is so called up in being a Christian. You can't not do it. These two things go together. They're part and parcel. And so this morning, uh, we, we move on to this, this third thing that, that maybe we don't really understand either. Uh, it's, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. So what, what does that mean? Were they not devoted last week when they were eating each other's homes? Well, well, certainly, right? So if you were to go back through and you were to look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, if you could have been a fly on the wall as these words you would have seen Luke writing some words, at least one word, a couple times in this passage that you don't see today. It's not translated in most of our translations for whatever reason. This little word is the. In front of, you see it here in the first one, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to 
the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. Luke wrote the in front of each one of these four different habits. And so he's talking about a special type of breaking bread, right? He's not just talking about going to Wendy's or doing one of our fellowship meals and eating together. This is a special breaking of the bread. I think he's talking about the Lord's Supper. So how would the first century church devote themselves to the Lord's Supper? What, what would that look like? And how do we do that today, right? Well, let's get into what the Lord's Supper actually is. I think Rick did a kind of a fabulous job presenting for us, getting our minds straight uh, this morning for when we took it. And I was afraid he was going to teach my lesson for me. So I was just going to get up here and sit down and, and be done. Uh, he touched on several things that I want to touch on this morning. Uh, but there's also a sheet in the back that's got uh, some notes, uh, a question for each uh, one of the days of the week, this coming week, Monday through Friday, uh, five questions for you to kind of dive a little bit deeper into this study. We're not going to plunge the depths uh, of, this, of this topic. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and chapter 11, will say some very deep things that I'm not sure I completely grasp about the Lord's Supper yet. Uh, and so I want to continue thinking about those things. And maybe some of those questions back in the back some of our thoughts today, both Rick's thoughts and my thoughts this morning, will, will help influence some of our thinking here. So be prepared for that. Um, dive deep into those sheets and, and allow this, this, this devotion that the first century church had to be your devotion as well. And so what would it look to be devoted to the Lord's Supper? Well, like I said, Paul has a couple of thoughts, seven in fact, um, that we are going to talk about today. We're not going to be able to go very deeply in these things, but go ahead and be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. These are obviously going to be things that you're going to have to go back through on your own this week and just kind of mull over. Uh, if I were you, I would take these things, um, one of these descriptors for the Lord's Supper each day of the week and just kind of mull it over. Roll over some of these verses in your minds and think through exactly what this means uh, because I think Paul is presenting a very powerful case for us here. But the very first thing he says is that the Lord's Supper is a blessing, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. Let's back up to verse 14. Obviously, the Corinthian congregation has some struggles with the Lord's Supper. They're not doing it correctly. They're not doing it with the right motivation. Obviously, that's, that's clear from what Paul says to the Corinthians. But he also wants to teach them, you know, um, a little bit more about what this is like. And he gives us a view of what it means to be devoted to the Lord's Supper. So the Corinthians are just as much a first century church as the church in Jerusalem is, right? And so as Paul talks to this congregation, the Corinthian congregation, about what the Lord's Supper is, he gives us an idea of some of the things that we ought to be devoted to as we think through the Lord's Supper. So very quickly, we're going to run through some of these things. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? No, let's just stop right there and go back to the, uh, this, this idea of a blessing, the cup of blessing that we bless. So, <coughs> there it is, see? Um, this cup of blessing... Why is grape juice or, or wine what was used in the first century? 
when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, could he not have used whatever medium he wanted to? Well, of course he could have. So why use wine or grape juice? Well, there's some Old Testament stuff here that you've got to get back to so you can understand everything Paul's trying to get across to us. Because there's a symbol inside of the symbol that we use today for the, for the, grape, for the grape juice, the Lord's, the Lord's blood. So if you go back through and you look at the Old Testament use of wine, you're going to find a lot of passages that command you not to be involved with strong drink. Don't be drunk. That is a lot of the Old Testament teaching on alcohol. Stay away from it. Stay far away from it. Don't get involved in that. There's another section that you find in Genesis chapter 27, among other verses, some of which I've put on the sheet out there um, in the foyer for you, that look at wine in a slightly different context. If you've got your Bibles, why don't you be turning to Genesis chapter 27. We're going to look in verse 28. Uh, Isaac is getting old. In fact, he's so old, he can't see very well. If I took my contacts out, I couldn't tell one of my children from the other, I'm sure. So uh, maybe he's not that old. But, you know, Isaac's getting toward the end of his life, and his eyesight has failed him. And so he's preparing to pass the torch on to the next generation. And he wants to bless his oldest son, Esau. Um, And it's a common thing. Fathers in his day did this. This is, this is kind of what they did. And they would bring their oldest son in. They would give him the blessing. They would bring the younger son in and give him one-third of their stuff because they'd already given two-thirds or most of the blessing to the older brother. So he brings in what he thinks is the older brother. Now, Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob is uh, the sneakier of the two. And so Jacob has, as his name indicates, supplanted Esau. And he has taken his place, thanks to his mother's help. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. He comes into Isaac's tent. He steals the blessing. But what's so interesting there in Genesis chapter 27, verse 28, is one of the things that Isaac says that he gave to Jacob. Now, he gives him a laundry list of things as Esau comes and he says, well, what's left for me? Surely you've got a blessing for me. And Isaac kind of throws his hands and he says, well, I kind of gave it all to your brother. One of the things that he says that he gave Plenty of grain, look there toward the end of verse 28, plenty of grain and plenty of wine. Now, is, is Isaac hoping that Jacob, or Esau, um, turns into a drunk? Well, of course not. But he is envisioning for his son a future in which he is well taken care of, in which he is safe, in which his, his uh, future can prosper, right? And he's using this symbol of wine to do that, to convey that thought, right? Bring that thought all the way through, because it, it stands all the way through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, and you find Jesus at the Last Supper giving them wine or grape juice to, to institute the meal that he is going to say, take this until I come again. Right? So what, what prosperity should we see in the symbol of the wine or the grape juice here in the Lord's Supper? The cup of blessing. Is it not a blessing to be connected to Christ? Is that not the greatest blessing that we've ever, could have ever had? To be a part of His family, to be, a, to be an heir to what He's accomplished be connected now to God thanks only, solely blood of Christ. It was the only thing that was powerful enough to do that. 
to make us one with the Father. This cup is a blessing, right? But maybe think about it also in this vein. The recreated work that God has done inside of you, He's made you a new creation through your baptism. And the weekly reminder of the Lord's Supper every time you drink the grape juice is a weekly reminder that you're brand new. That He's cleansed you, that He's washed you, but also that you have a brand new agenda. It's no longer your agenda. It's no longer the things that you want to do. It's no longer the things that are important to you that you take up. But now it's the things that are important to Him. Maybe some of the things that make you uncomfortable. Maybe some of the things that are hard. Jesus doesn't ask us to do a whole lot of easy things. He asks us to overcome some stuff that are inside of us for His glory, right? That is a blessing to be reminded of that fact. Now, as we walk through these seven things, you're going to find some overlap uh, throughout these things because, like I said, they're, they're kind of one train of thought as Paul walks through these next two chapters in 1 Corinthians. So when we get to the end here in a few minutes, uh, maybe I can sum, uh, sum, sum, summarize. There it is. Maybe I can summarize it a little bit better for you. But just for right now, if you're taking notes, uh, blessings. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. It's a blessing to be a part of his family, right? And, and all the things that that means, the recreation, the brand new person that you are inside of him. And the weekly reminder that we have of that incredible generosity. 1 Corinthians 10, let's read the rest of this verse. Verse 16, we stopped a little short, didn't we? So let's, let's keep on reading. Remember I said this is kind of one stream of thought. Paul's not jumping ships. He's not going to number two as we're presenting it this morning necessarily. Um, it's all one stream of thought. And so let's jump back into, into this verse. Verse uh, 16. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? It's a, it's a participate. We're sharing, right? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Well, let's stop right there. We'll move on to verse 17 in a second. But this, this participation, uh, uh, this communion of being a part of uh, God, the Lord's Supper is a reminder that we are not our own. We, we've handed plan over to Jesus. And now he has taken control of our lives. Like we said earlier with the blessing component, it's not us that are directing our steps anymore. We're not the ones figuring out how we live, what we do, where we go, who we make friends with, how we think, who we marry, how we raise our children, how we die. None of those things are ours to, to, to direct anymore. We're not in charge of that. He's already given us how we do that. And as his person, as someone who has participated with him, we take up his mantle. We, we do things. I thought it was so interesting. I, I don't know why I hadn't thought of this verse before Rick read it this morning. In John uh, 13 there where Jesus institutes the Last Supper. But he, when um, the, 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 he's washing the disciples' feet and he gets around to Peter... And, you know, Peter says, I don't want you to wash my feet. I should be washing your feet. Why Peter didn't do that in the first place, we'll never know. Probably pride. Um, but I, I, and Jesus says, well, if I don't wash your feet, then you don't have any. Did you hear the word that he used there? I don't have any share. 
with me. You're not a part of me. You're not participating with me. You haven't allowed me to cleanse you. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, it is a vivid, visceral reminder that we have been cleansed, that we are no longer enslaved, shackled to sin like we used to be. It is a terrible taskmaster who only wants to hurt and destroy you. Jesus says in John 10 that, that the thief only comes to kill and steal. That's exactly the taskmaster that, that, uh, that, that sin is to us. It only wants to steal and kill. It only wants to destroy and hurt you, me. He says, I'm willing to take that from you, but you have to participate in me. You have to share with me. And so have we done that? Have we allowed him to cleanse us? Are we participating with him? Not just in a single act of baptism, although that's at the moment we are saved, but also the rest of our life participating with him, sharing in his deeds, the things that he does, but also sharing in his thoughts, just allowing him to transform every aspect of our lives. The Lord's Supper should never get stale for us, right? From these, just these first two descriptors that Paul gives us here in 1 Corinthians 10, just this one verse, the Lord's Supper should never be stale for us. Every time we come in contact with this incredible meal, incredible symbol, incredible thought, it ought to humble us and, and just bring us to our knees. Let me dive you into the next the next one. The Lord's Supper is also unity, right? First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. And we're going to go through verse 22. He, he just has this, this thought here that I want you to capture. Starting in verse 17. Because there's one bread, that's why we participate in, in Christ, right? Because there's one bread. We who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Right? He's saying because of what Jesus has done, you're now one body. What happens if you, if you uh, cut your finger? Does your brain feel it, right? What happens if you, you ever stump your toe? I've gotten bad about hitting my knee on stuff. I don't know how I hit my knee on stuff, but I've gotten bad. Guess what happens? It sends shivers all the way down my leg when you stump your toe. When one piece of us hurts, the whole thing hurts, Right? He's saying because you're connected to Christ in such an in, a visceral way, such an incredible way, so connected to Him, you're connected to each other too, right? Uh, it's kind of like driving in a car. If you have a car accident and your whole family's in the car, who's it hurt? Well, it hurts everybody, doesn't it? Because you're all connected because of the car. He says, well, you're all connected inside of Christ. And so when you hurt, you all hurt. And when... You're happy, you're, you're all happy. And when one excels, you all excel. It's a unity, right? Check out what else he says. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. So he's talking about uh, physical Israel here, like the nation of Israel. Uh, consider them are not those who eat the sacrifice, participants, there's that word again, participants in the altar. So they benefit from, from bringing food, from bringing sacrifices to the altar. Uh, in ancient Israel, if, uh, if I was to bring a sacrifice, 
um, uh, to, to the altar. The priest would get some of the, the food after it was burnt, and I would get a portion of it. We participated, right? There was some sharing, but there was also some benefit uh, to, to both parties. That's, that's kind of what Paul's saying here. Um, what do I imply that he's kind of like, what am I saying here? You know, if, if maybe the Corinthians um, aren't those spiritual among the congregations that Paul is um, found in. So he's, he's kind of drawing a line for him here. What am I implying then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? <laughs> Paul kind of says, chuckles, of course not. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants. There's our word again, participants, with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? We're talking about a reliance here on God. Go back and look at what he says uh, in, this, in this first verse uh, that we've looked at in verse 16. Where does he put... Where's, what's the order of the Lord's Supper that Paul talks about here? He puts the cup first, doesn't he? And then he puts the bread. What? We're familiar with these passages. We hear them on a regular basis, right? Every other time in the rest of Scripture, the inspired writer is going to put the bread first and then the wine. That's what Jesus did. We heard Rick read it for us today in John chapter 13. That's how it works. That's how the Lord's Supper functions, the bread first and then the cup. Why does Paul invert them here? Well, as Paul is wont to do, he wants to teach you a lesson. He wants uh, you to, 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 to spend some time with his writings because he's very clever on top of being inspired. So you don't need to run over this very quickly. So what's he trying to say? Well, there's a reliance here on Christ for the unity, for the cleansing, for the power of transformation that he demands inside of his people. All of this is called up when we take the Lord's Supper. It's not a simple meal that should be overlooked very quickly. You see how they were devoted to these things? I mean, can you see how this would change the first century church or the 21st century church? Being devoted Devoted to these things, to, to being devoted to participating with Christ, to living my life like He would live my life if He could take it over. To being unified with Him. So there's this, there's this vertical uh, reliance, this vertical unity that we've got here. We have that unity because he cleansed us. We need his cleansing because he's the only one that can do that, right? His blood's the only one powerful enough to do that. So we go up here when Paul mentions the cup first because he wants you to know that Jesus is the only one who has the power to do that. But then he starts talking about the cup. <coughs> Excuse me. And he wants you also to understand that you need to be unified with each other. We need to be close enough to each other that we hurt with each other that we think the same thing, right? We need to be involved in each other's lives. I think it's what he's saying here. And the first century church was devoted to that thought. All right, we got a couple more. I'm gonna have to go through a little faster. First Corinthians chapter 11. Skip over uh, to verse 23. Let's look at these last couple. <clears throat> Paul's still talking about the Lord's Supper here. Listen to what he says in verse 23. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. <coughs> when he took the bread, what did he do? What was the first thing that he did? He turned around and he gave thanks, right? This is a meal of thanksgiving. We're about to celebrate that, right, in a couple, uh, what, a couple months. But this meal, we celebrate it every week. This, this idea uh, that when we find ourselves holding the cup that is symbolic of Jesus' blood, that thought ought to overwhelm us every single week to the point that we are spiritually on our knees in humility, Right? Just the thought that God would leave heaven to know what his creation felt like and ultimately to die for us, that thought ought to not be able to be gotten out of your head, right? And every time we take the Lord's Supper, every time we hold that little plastic cup in our hands now, that thought ought to overwhelm us with thanksgiving. That ought to be the natural outflowing uh, of this idea. Here's another one we're, we're kind of familiar with. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. The Lord's Supper is a remembrance, right? Uh, he says when, you know, we do this uh, so that we can remember Him. This is a thought that runs through all the other ones, right? As we've walked through uh, the last couple, you've noticed uh, that it's, it's a lot of going back, reviewing. And that's what, he's, that's what he's trying to get across here. You remember, you contemplate. During this time in our worship, you pause, you thank God, you recognize the blessing it is to be one of his heirs. You think about what it means to be a participant with Christ. What's interesting about this verse is when Jesus instituted the supper, he was doing that right in the middle of a 1,400-year-old Remembrance meal. An, an, another meal that was meant to remember something else, right? He did this right in the middle of Passover. The Jews have been celebrating Passover for 1,400 years on the night that Jesus sets up the Lord's Supper. And to every Jew in the world up until that night, that's what you remembered. You remembered, well, God bought them out of Israel out of Egypt. He made them a whole new nation, but he did so by bringing Egypt to its knees, by taking the firstborn. Uh, and blood was involved there, right? Blood and obedience, right? Because if you weren't obedient to put the blood up on the doorpost, what happened? Well, your firstborn was taken. And so, for 1,400 years, this meal, this Passover meal, had, they've been remembering that. And now Jesus comes into the middle of that meal and he says, when you guys take this, you remember me, not the Passover. Because I'm bringing you out of an even greater enslavement than the one that you knew in Egypt. You thought that was bad. Have you ever heard of this thing called sin? Remember what kind of taskmaster it is? How it only wants to steal, kill, and destroy. At least the Egyptians found you good for something. This thing just hates you. And it wants to destroy you. And Satan uses it as a, a pry bar against your faithfulness. All this is, and Jesus says, I, I pulled you out of that. And so now, when you take this weekly meal, 
you remember my sacrifice and all the things that are called up in that sacrifice, who I ought to be, how I ought to think, how I ought to live and be and breathe. Last, nope, <laughs> second to last thing is proclamation. Um, the Lord's Supper is a proclamation. Look in verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until, until He comes. So the Lord's Supper is not just a backward look, right? It's not just a remembering the things that Jesus has done, His sacrifice for us, and how we ought to be, but what? It's also a look forward. It's a look back, but it's also a look forward. And we proclaim Make this proclamation every Sunday that He is coming back. Right? He hasn't left us orphans. He's coming back. The amazing thing, when you go back and you look at the sacrifice, it's incredible, right? And our minds can focus on that. But what good does it do if He's just going to leave us here forever? The good news in the Lord's Supper is He hasn't. He's made a deal He's made a covenant, to use a biblical term with us, that He's coming back. In John chapter 14, He says, If I wasn't coming back, what would I have told you? He told us He's coming back. He's told us He's going to come back and get us, and we get to live with Him forever. And the Lord's Supper is a weekly reminder of that, of that, of that idea, that proclamation. The last thing we're going to talk about this morning is this self-examination you find here. You're familiar with this, I'm sure. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and 28, this is one of the things that we focus on quite a bit as we take the Lord's Supper every week. Uh, maybe we leave out some of these other thoughts. Maybe they're not as much of a focus as they ought to be. But this one certainly we, uh, we talk about an awful lot. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. Rick made a really interesting point that I ran across uh, this week, but not with Judas. Uh, in his, in his uh, Lord's Supper thoughts for us this morning, Judas didn't get to take the Lord's Supper, did he? He had to be excused before the supper was instituted. Why? Because sinful people don't get to take this meal. This is for God's people, holy people, righteous people, people who are being called by His name, who are constantly transforming more and more into His image, who are learning more and more about Him, who are so connected to each other that they hurt with each other, that they joy with each other. That's who this meal is for. And so when we come to it, it is incumbent upon us to examine our lives, to, to take apart my heart and make sure that it is where it needs to be, that I am who I ought to be before I take this meal, because this is something that is holy. It's not for everyone. It's just for God's people, just for baptized believers who have left the life of sin in the rearview mirror, and are now striving to be who God wants them to be. And so we examine ourselves and make sure that that is who we are. Now, I said there's a lot of overlap in these thoughts. Um, 
And, and, and I think there is. But again, I think it's one stream of thought that Paul's trying to get across to us. What the first century church devoted to the Lord's Supper, how were they devoted to it? Well, maybe this sentence, I'll post this on Facebook later. I think it may be helpful for us. Uh, I just thought of it uh, after I made my PowerPoint. I already be on there. But it says, we're blessed because we share in Christ. And because we share in Him, we're all one. Because we participate with Him, we're all one. For, for that inexpressible gift, we should be thankful and never forget the cost. Examining ourselves to make sure we're still in that upright relationship with Him. While we tell everyone about His sacrifice and that He's coming back. You see the stream of thought that we ought to be thinking as we take the Lord's Supper? Something that we ought to be these are things that we need to be devoted to. It's not always easy to lead this life. It's not easy to stay devoted. But that's the word he uses in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when he starts talking about the church and their devotion. There are some days when you wake up and this life is hard, right? It's hard to trust. It's hard to love like this. It's hard to be unified like this. It's hard to give like this. That's where devotion kicks in. Because devotion says that you do things even when you might not always feel like it. And so we love like this. And we give like this. And we share like this. And we're unified like this. That's who we are. Because we're God's people. And every Sunday, we get a reminder of how we should be living and acting and being and who we are. Thanks to the Lord's Supper. As we participate with Christ, as we examine ourselves, and as we proclaim not only His sacrifice, but also His coming. He's coming back. Don't you want to be in the group that's glad to see His return? This morning, if you haven't been baptized into Christ, that's the first essential step to not only take the Lord's Supper, but also to participate with Christ to start the transformation that is so necessary. You can only find that power inside of His blood. This morning, maybe you've made that decision. You just need the prayers of this congregation. Be who God would have you to be. If you have any this morning, why don't you come as we stand and sing?
was at our service this morning, 336 is it for me. 336. We'll sing the first two verses, and then Brother Charlie Boso will lead some prayer. Let's pray. Holy Father, because of you, we have all that we need. Father, you sacrificed your son that we might have that hope of eternity, a life with you. We thank you for that and for all he has done for us. Father, we thank you for this congregation now who works here, who are willing to respond and to help people in need. We see that coming on every day that uh, somebody might need food, other help, and we provide for it. And we thank you that we have the opportunity that we can do that. We thank you, dear God, for the elders who serve and for David and Chris who work diligently and are here all the time. And we just thank you so much for the blessings that we have. We just say you pray that you continue to be with us and help us to, to reach out to others, to help those who are in need and who need somebody. And Father, just guide us in our lives that we can do that and be that servant to you. We thank you for all you've given to us. It's his space of your son, Jesus, in his name we pray. Amen. <laughs> Whatever it is, you knock me down or I'll knock you down.